Hello everyone and welcome to Anarchy SF, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. I am Eden Kupermintz and with me as always is Yanai. Hello Yanai. Hello Eden, who has a last name? Uh, you don't. It, 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 well, we, no. It's like conditional. I'm a chef Madonna. Yeah, we lose our last names when we're not the primary <laughs> podcast host, right? Like we, when we don't open the episode. Yeah. How's it going? Oh, uh, it's going good. You know, watching worlds collapse, empires falling down. I don't know. Um, yeah. But the yeah, personally, in my own life, it's uh, it, it is it is interesting. There's a lot of uh, you know, I'm I'm perfectly positioned to write papers about it. Like that's that's my <laughs> idiotic uh, contribution to to whatever the hell is going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm glad to hear the micro is okay. The macro is as it is and has yeah. been for the extent of our lives because we're millennials and we got absolutely fucked. Um, as it will ever be. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, today, we are going to discuss an alternative or, or rather how to react to shitty conditions and, and try to find alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, we are about to discuss Ammonite by Nicola Griffith. Nicola Griffith is a British-American writer. She was born in York, but then later on in her life, interestingly enough, she was able to immigrate to the U.S. because she got a special exception. Um, what, what do they call it? National interest waiver, right? Where extraordinary people get like visas waived by the U.S. government. And she was able to do that after many, many um, difficulties. And eventually one of the tipping points was that Allen Ginsberg in the flesh um, really? wrote, yeah, wrote in her um, favor as, and I quote, um, an astonishingly gifted writer. Her work is of the very best in the lesbian and gay literary field. In my opinion, it is in the national interest to grant her immigrant status in this country. And that is what happened. And to this day, she lives in Seattle with her partner, um, Ammonite was her debut full-length novel. She had written short stories and novellas before it, um, but that uh, was her debut. That was published in 1993, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. 1992, mm-hmm. sorry, at the very end of the year. And went on to win the James uh, Tiptree Award, uh, the Lambda Literary Award, which is one of the all the biggest LGBTQ fiction, science fiction, fantasy uh, prize. Later on, also won the Alpha C. Clark and the Locus Award. And afterwards, she's written a lot more um, that was awarded for Nebulas and Yugos and so on and so forth. So very accomplished writer. You had a note there? If I'm not mistaken, like not the most, unless this is a blind spot for me, like not the most well-known book yes. and author like correct deserving that was stature yeah that was my second caveat as we have said many times before because we try to cover things which are less well known um nicola griffith is very much a writer's writer like many other writers we have covered uh in the past mm-hmm. specifically um also le guin cited ammonite and again, I quote, a knockout first novel with strong, likable characters, a compelling story, and a very interesting take on gender, which must have been very nice for Griffith, considering how influenced Ammonite clearly is by the left, left hand of darkness. Um, 
Yeah, so, but I will say that it takes a very different, we'll, we'll get to it. It takes a very different approach than left-handed darkness, which I find very interesting, but it is very uh, influenced for sure. A hundred percent. Yes. Uh, also by the telling, I, I would say in general, also Le Guin's work um, in recent years, by the way, uh, Griffith has published less, but now she seems uh, to be on a roll. In 2013, she uh, published Hild, which I have been meaning to read for a long time and have not yet um, gotten into it. She's she's doing a lot of um, historical fiction now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did read Spear, which I believe I recommended on this podcast a few episodes ago, um, which is it's a, a queer retelling of Percival and the Holy Grail. Um, Hild oh. also focuses... Yeah, Hild also focuses on Anglo-Saxon Britain, um, which is interesting. It's also like the, the turn to the historical novel is also like a well-established trope within the circles that Griffith is working with. Even also Le Guin dabbled in it when she wrote Lavinia. Really good book, by the way. Incredibly underrated. Uh, focuses on um, the wife of Aeneas from the Aeneid and like the foundation of Rome and so on. Very good book. And I mean, I feel like that's doing... unfair because just Le Guin dabbles in all kinds of genre fiction. Yeah. So for sure, uh, yeah, that, that that's a good point. Anyway, Spear is excellent and probably the best thing that happened to me out of visiting Las, Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, no. um, I hated the city, but I bought that book there at a really cool uh, store um, called The Writer's Corner. So if you're like up there, it's a really nice uh, bookstore, really well stocked, like incredibly well stocked. I found other gems. Uh, over there and also has a nice coffee shop so if you're out there um, you might want to check that out one last note on griffith's biography before we jump into the novel we have mentioned the clarion workshop of writing several times on this podcast yeah. as well as other of my podcasts and uh, griffith also attended um, clarion we won't bore you with the details once again but for those keeping score at home uh, here is another writer that that uh, studied yeah. at clarion and was influenced yeah with its problematics and differences, differences of opinion and so on, it's an, it's an interesting body. Maybe we should like dedicate an episode at one point to its history. But for now, let's talk about Ammonite. Let's give you a brief um, synopsis, and then we can dive into the discussion. So I think Ammonite, I can do that. Go on. Yeah, go on. Go for it. Um, one thing I want to say about Ammonite, uh, that it's uh, kind of like my recommendation is I feel like this could be your first science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. I think it sets up a lot of what you want to kind of know are the main themes of a lot of science fiction, gives you an introduction and doesn't rely on too much like pre-knowledge of, you know, tropes. It, it's not... It is subverting some stuff, but it's not like dedicated to the subversion to an extent that if you don't know the origin, you're like, what's going on here? So Ammonite uh, follows a uh, uh, sociologist researcher uh, on a venture to a planet that has uh, been quarantined and she kind of discovers a lot about what's going on in the planet and the virus that has caused the quarantine and kind of has to navigate a lot of socio-political stuff on planet and also somewhat off planet, I'd say is kind of what's going on in this. Yeah. So um, just to elaborate on some of those threads, the main character is called Marge. Um, She is also has some sort of past of like, 
getting into it with the world government, basically, um, being like a whistleblower and, and, you know, doing stuff like that. Um, the other main character is the commander of the Mirrors, which are the um, military arm of the main industrial group. Like there's a, the world government and there's also, damn, I forgot, oh, the company, right? Dorillium yeah, company. The company is like, it's yeah. like the, the, what's it called? The West Indian uh, trade. Uh... Trade company, yeah. It's like the military industrial complex personified into a company, right? Yeah. Um, and, and their commander, the Mirrors are, you know, this very brutal and, and disciplined and also technologically uh, superior uh, military uh, force. And they kind of like um, are the vanguard. However, arriving at Gernstrom's planet, I suppose you would um, pronounce it. It's, it's uh, not surprising that they uh, call it Jeep. Uh, since the yeah. abbreviation is GP, they call it Jeep. So arriving there, they get contract some sort of um, virus, which is 100% fatal to men, or like 95% fatal to men, and only, quote-unquote, 40-50% fatal to women. Um, or I think it's, no, it's 100% fatal to men, yeah. It's 100% uh, so, to men, or we don't know about any men who have survived it, and it's yeah. like 20%, I think, to women. So it's really bad for women, and it's... Uh, uh, I don't know, terrible for men, as terrible as yeah. that. And then, kind of like in the telling, and also in Left Hand of Darkness, the main character um, embarks on a journey deeper into the planet, uh, farther away from the beachheads uh, created by the colonizing uh, forces, specifically the company, um, and deeper into contact with the natives of um, the planet and their culture, uh, trying to. Again, very much like the telling. Maybe it's more like the telling than it is the left hand of darkness um, mm-hmm. to unravel some sort of mystery, right? Like from outside, it's unclear how the natives um, reproduce, right? There's no men, although the people are of human physiology. So we're not talking about aliens that have like a different uh, me- mechanism of reproduction. So how do I they think do that's it? Right? to think that they are descendant from humans who have visited the planet much, much Oh, yeah, it's, it's explicitly said. It's like, uh, what, what's that trope called? Like, they sent out seed ships, and because of the distance from Earth, a long time has passed since um, Earth has been in contact, and now it's reclaiming um, its colonies. Like, they have um, Norse and Spanish and African names. That is the natives, right? But somehow mm-hmm. they are reproducing, even though all of the men have died. And that's kind of the mystery at the core of the novel um, and what the main character tries to unravel. And of course, as she goes deeper, and I'm, I'm laying up your first topic, Yanai, um, she, quote-unquote, goes native, right? She distances herself from her origin culture and gets closer and closer to the native perspective yeah. um, until she comes back and there's interaction between those two ideologies. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, description. And I think last thing before we kind of move into spoiler territory is I'll say it is a very good book to think about. Like this is not, and I'll explain with my my kind of first point um, why I say this, but this is not a book that is going to try to make you think any particular thing too much. 
it is going to give you some stuff to think about, which I think is is nice, and it's just doing science fiction right. Yeah, I think I, I approach this from a different perspective. I was just looking for my highlights. You know, I, I read on an e-reader. One of the reasons is that I can highlight things and then they get exported. And when I do podcasts, mm-hmm. it's easier to like refer back to them. And I actually didn't highlight anything. Um, yeah. And I think that also speaks to the prose, which is like in Le Guin's style, right? It's very sparse, but it mm-hmm. doesn't have her turn of phrase that kind of like arrests you, even though the language is simple. Here, the language, I've, and I'm not saying this as a criticism, it's just an observation, the, the, the word-by-word language is unremarkable, but it does have a lot of really powerful scenes, which leads me to um, what you said. It's like not a book about necessarily ideas to think about, but it does a really good job of conveying a few things. One, how people react to crisis, I think, is depicted really well in this novel and the different mm-hmm. adaptations and the prices they're willing to pay. Um, it's a very patient book which sometimes can be um, hard to read because it really takes its time. But that enables it to like track how friendships are formed in a really interesting yeah. way and how people come to know each other and from strangers to acquaintances to actually close friends and, and lovers. Um, and lastly, I think it's just very good at capturing places like locales are very distinct in this book. Yes. Look, think about think about the telling, right? Like you can't really, even though I've read it like three times, I can't really tell you all of the different locations on the journey of the main character, except mm-hmm. for the last one, which is really iconic. The rest of them kind of blur together, right? Well, here, all the phases are so well fleshed out that they feel like very um, deep places that I can relate to even after it's been like a few months since I read the book. Yeah, location and like scenes, because like you remember a lot of climate, right? Like that factors in a lot. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay, spoilers. So, yeah, spoilers. I want to start. So I want to start. And my my starting point is not about going native, actually. It's a more broad kind of thing about the book. And uh, so I I wrote that it, it says everything and adds nothing, which... It's kind of interesting approach. So, so you mentioned that also Le Guin says that this book has an interesting take on gender. And I was like, you know, first, almost first thing that you learn in this book is that all the, uh, you know, all the men are, are dead and like, this is a planet of only women. Like, that's like, you know, a kind of sign. I'm like, oh, contrivance to have a planet of only women. Um, but I'm like, okay, well, what is this going to say about, about what women are, right? Like, and you can see like how many ways this can go wrong, right? Like are women like nurturing and like there would be no war if the world was dominated by women kind of yeah. like essentializing what like gender stereotypes make women into. It could be super liberal think... is what you're saying. Yeah. And I think really interestingly, it doesn't do that and it doesn't go in the other direction either. What it does is it just presents uh, like a variety of women that just mm-hmm. are very different from each other and have relationships that on the one hand, I think are gendered. Like I think it matters that they're women, but on the other hand, you have like genocidal people and you have like uh, you know, tough merchant type and capitalists and like people who really care about property. And then you have people who are more communal, people who are more maternal, like 
you have all of these kind of um, kind of variations, and I think the same goes for this the treatment by this novel of indigeneity. So this the um, the kind of locals that exist before the the current sociologist inquiry are uh, coded definitely as as native as indigenous people who are being studied by a kind of colonizing force and and it is settler colonialism by the way uh, but the feeling is, is that in this case there is no kind of dearth of land or, or risk of, uh, of invasion right now uh, because of the virus uh, but in any case you we get all these um, different indigenous groups and different indigenous people within those groups and it's so easy to fall into the wisdom of the noble savage on the one yeah. hand, and it's easy to fall into, you know, oh, they are set in their ways. And um, I think this is a really interesting approach because some of some of it does do like wisdom of the noble savage and some of it does they are set in their ways and some of it does some other stuff. Some of it does, you know, they're kind of like us, but with like different names for things. And... Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's really an interesting approach to how to explore these things where you want to say something about what it means to be a woman or what, what you want what it means to be indigenous, but you also want to kind of sidestep the risk of just saying that, you know, your identity defines you in a in a very determinist way. And I think I think this is a really interesting approach for it. I super agree with what you're saying. I think it's really interesting because what it enables Griffith to do is kind of respect the humanity of women, right? Like when you boil down women to reacting to men, like think about what you're saying if when you're saying if only men never existed or would stop to exist, then the whole uh-huh. world would be completely different. What you're saying is women have had no impact on human society, right? Like <laughs> men yeah. have are the only ones who have imprinted society with their um, ideas and their stories and so on. And while, of course, it's correct that our patriarchal society is way, way, way more influenced by men just because of the power structures and the access they have to history and myth-making and, and financial structures and so on, it is completely wrong to say that women have not influenced society in many, many, many important ways. So what Griffith is saying is there are, and I think importantly, the main character is an anthropologist, not just for the Le Guin Association, but also for what she does on the planet, which is the mirrors are the bad guys, right? Like they want to do settler colonialism, right? They want to break down all the indigenous people into one group that they can then corral and exploit and slowly disenfranchise as they conquer the planet. And then Yeah, that's kind of the, what they, they usually are, although like that isn't yeah. even how that shakes out in this well we'll talk about it, but Sure, but there's that's, but that's there's, the there's, Yeah, but then there's the second level. So far so good, right? But then there's the second level of criticism which says, okay, so in a very in a more simple science fiction story, the SEC, the world government, they would be like the well meaning liberals who try to fix things and they fail but here it actually goes one step further and and griffith for the protagonist makes it clear that no it's way worse than that they're not just well-meaning liberals they are completely complicit in allowing the company to exploit as it does and as marge 
Marge has to break down her own perception of herself as she, she starts like the whimsical, well-meaning scientist and she even says about herself, oh, I'm so clumsy, I don't know the real world, blah, blah, blah. And then the book is like, no, 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 you are much worse than that. It's not just about being like a, a well-intentioned, bumbling fool. You're like evil. Mm-hmm. You have, even though you think you resisted the company on the previous planet, she speaks out for the rights of miners and then she gets completely, she gets assaulted and like heavily beaten by them. And that's what starts out this illusion with SEC. The book is like your very presence on this planet as the emissary of the SEC is designed to condition and whitewash the exploitation of the planet. And that's what she really has to break down by. And that's what I loved about what you said, because the variety doesn't fit what Marge is trying to do on the planet. She wants to understand the natives. yeah, And then the natives kind of tell her there are no the natives. There's like mm-hmm. hundreds of different groups. Also, this book does um, has Trata, right, which is a very interesting concept. And, and this might actually set up Graeber and, and when go right um, like mm-hmm. gift giving economy uh, which um, Bartles favors but it more than favors like allegiances friendships love care and so on and, and what the natives are telling her you think you're better than the mirrors and like you're kind of correct like we prefer you over the mirrors but you're also not that good because you want to reduce us into something that is again simple and easy to exploit. And instead, we insist, they insist on their variety and on their difference. Yeah, there's a point at where she gets to, like, what I guess would be, like, the, the kind of worst <laughs> uh, uh, group of uh, indigenous people that she meets. Yeah, uh, the Ekraith again. Yeah. And they immediately threaten her and almost kill her, but they kind of decide not to. And they, they decide to show mercy, but also they force her to join their group in a way that's kind of saying, you know, we don't care that you're here to study us. That's not that's not important anymore. <laughs> like, we are not savages. We are not killing people for accidentally bumbling into, she accidentally disrupts this uh, ancient um, circle or something. But... Um, yeah, but you're going to live by our rules because that's that's what's here. Uh, which I think is is one example of, of how kind of the, um, the dichotomy of her just being a researcher breaks down and it's like you you are a participant too, which is a classic yeah, kind think, of situation. Yeah. I think to go um, one step further, I think the section of the book with the Ekraith is the best. Um, I, I absolutely loved it, especially because I think, and I, slight criticism, I think um, Ife, the friend slash potentially could have been lover um, of the Ekraith and her sister Uifne, I probably butchered both those names, I apologize. Um, yeah, I guess fast- this is an audiobook, so I can tell you how it, the audiobook chose to pronounce them, but. Yeah, I mean, these are actual, like, especially Ife is like a very, that, that, that one I think I'm getting right because it's like a, like a known Anglo-Saxon name. Um, so they were the best characters. Like, I loved how they were written. I loved the, their story, the differences between them, the, the cultural 
um, artifacts of like the Ekrai, that entire passage was really good. And I think uh-huh. one of the reasons that it was so good is that she didn't crack it. Right? Like Marge doesn't succeed in understanding and assimilating into the Ekrai. She, she runs away. Right? Like in other books, you know what would have happened, right? That would have been exactly like the, the, um, the cavern of the hero's journey, right? She would have gotten to the lowest of the low, and from there, she would have suddenly seen the light and understand that the Ekraith way of living is just as blah, 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 blah. And then there would have been a reconciliation. But here it's like, no, this is how these people live. This is the way of life, even though it's leading to their destruction because they're only intermarrying and there's no fresh blood and they're violent and, and they're brutal and so on. But this is how they live and it's not a puzzle to be solved, right? It, it's a culture to, to be known. Um, and sometimes you fail and the expectation to like always get it and always understand it is, by the way, a, re- a very real problem in our world with how with uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like casual racism, right? Like white people, Which for example. Of- no, I mean racism that is not overt hate, mm-hmm. right? Like, again, well-intentioned. So think about uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, right? The, mm-hmm. the oh, white yeah. people, the white people who want to quote unquote understand black culture and feel like they if we use like an internet meme, they understand the black culture so much that they get an N-word pass. Right? Like a black person... Um, they want looks to consume up... it for its kind of exactly. uh, exciting otherness. Exactly. They want to break it down into parts, understand them, make them safe, make them digestible, and then consume them on their own terms, which is exactly what the Ekraith uh, refuse to do and what Marge perhaps tries to do. And then immediately after the passage with the people who then become her family in Olfos is completely different because there she she gives up on understanding, right? She she understands that she has to participate. Yeah. Interestingly, she can only adapt within the, the kind of very neoliberal thing that yeah. they have going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Olfos kind of like, I, I wouldn't say it's neoliberal. I think that's kind of harsh, but I would say it's like the anarchist, utopia that doesn't address any of the problems like don't worry bro trust me it's like no no they they speak so i'm kind of joking with neoliberalism but they speak about how you know you have to pay for everything like she has to pay for healthcare like she was cared for for it but you pay for it in like this syndicalist barter system right like you can pay for it with stories yes she does she does end up doing that so i feel like that is the the anarchist perfect society where all labor is equally valuable and therefore i mean it's the distillation of um from each according to their ability to each uh, according to their need right it's it's exactly that but i feel like that past, i i loved all of us for its scenery and the characters were really good but i don't feel like it went deep enough in exploring okay but what are the problems like how does conflict work it kind of touched on it but i don't feel like it went deep enough I like the character though that uh, well, we're just talking about the book now. Again, like I Which think you can fine. feel from our conversation how much the book just gives you this kind of uh, platform to talk about. There's a character that I don't remember her name, but she her thing is that she really likes to have the nicest things, and she's kind of obsessed with it. Like to the degree that like she wants the pelt of this you know rare creature, yeah. so she kind of hot hunts it but she can't kill it because she doesn't want to damage its pelt 
So she she watches it starve to death. She, she's and, a fantastic actor. Yeah, um, and it's like that's such an interesting like yeah. People within an indigenous society are not somehow like immune to having like an exploitative relationship with nature. I mean, yes, those like some of those societies have some really interesting and good ideas for how we could live more, um, you know, with less exploitation of nature, but they probably just by being societies have different people, some of whom are probably exploitative. Yeah. And also I think th um, that Huntress's uh, character also takes greed to a degree of mental illness. Like it is heavily hinted that she's a sadist. Right? Like she is yeah. completely callous to the suffering of an intelligent creature. We'll talk about the aliens um, a bit in a bit. Uh, but like, again, like you said, it's not that all of these neurosis, all of these problems that we have today are non-existent just because a culture is indigenous, right? Again, it's respecting their humanity. Inside of these cultures exists the full gamut of human variety, including things like um, obsession and pain and cruelty and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think that was kind of like my first point that I called anthropopolitics, which is like the politics of what is human or mm -hmm. like how you define humanity. And here Griffith tries to expand that definition as wide as she can. Um, and, and I can actually use the, the story of the hunters to kind of like jump off into my point about the aliens and not oh, to before find... I, do, I just, I, I just want yeah. to state that what I say about her kind of wanting to display all kinds in the audiobook I listened to, there's a short interview with her in the end. Like, yes, she says that explicitly. Like that's, that oh, was, awesome. she, she says like, I was sick of hearing about how, like, if we had a community of women, they would all be like vegan lesbians, uh, who, <laughs> you know, dance for the moon or something. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to show how, like, you can have everything. Yeah, awesome. And and, and to, to just drive that point home, I think that's that's radical, right? It is a yeah. radical idea, a political idea, saying, like, if you want to talk the talk of inclusivity, don't just include the visions of a, an opposing or alternative society that fit whatever is going on right now. Yeah, and I, if you want to understand gender and if you want to understand like what it means to be a woman, like don't expect that answer to be a shallow set of stereotypes that you have that are born of a patriarchy that tries to cre create a binary. Like expect yeah. massive diversity and still it means something like to be a woman. It's, it's just very complex and interesting. It's kind of like the insistence of the powerful that the weak resist in nonviolent ways. Right? Like, oh, I'm I'm willing to accept Palestinians, I'm willing to accept black people, I'm willing to accept indigenous people. I hope I hope of course they have rights, like I'm a liberal, but they have to be nice. Mm -hmm. They have to be courteous, they have to be mysterious, they have to be uh different and wild and so on. I can't just accept them for what they are, just like m myself and my uh class and people and so on. Some of them will be peaceful, some of them will be violent, some of them will be frustrated, some of them will be great talkers, some of them will be quiet and, and so on and so forth. And, they have to be a mother minority. Yeah, exa exactly. So, okay, sorry, to your next point. No, 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 
for sure. Very, very important point. Um, so we mentioned the, the creature that this hunters from all of us hunts. And in general, like the aliens on the planet are in the background. Right? They're kind of like haunting the story in many ways. Um, there's mm-hmm. a few different species. Some of them are like killers in the night. They're kind of almost like I got the, the, the image of the Zerg. Right? There's like they're like these incredibly fast and powerful and deadly. Or what are those um... swarms of insects that like y- you can kind of like live next to, but like if they come at you as a swarm, you have to like fight for your life. Yeah, um, but there's also those that you never seen. They like kill you in the in the snow. Um, what's the like the there's those powerful the most powerful monsters in. Um, Death claws in Fallout, mm, right? Where yeah. they're like solitary hunters that just appear from nowhere and kill you. And then there's this, the swarm, which is kind of like like the Zerg. And then there's um, the most quote unquote intelligent race, which is one of those um, is supposedly hunted by that hunter. They're completely a myth. Um, something with a G. I, I, I don't remember the name. Um, but they had like culture and perhaps even technology and uh, a language and so on before humans populated Jeep. And it is very strongly hinted that the arrival of the original human colonists um, destroyed them culturally. Mm -hmm. So it was perceived as some sort of like religious prophecy coming to life, which by the way is a recurring theme in Ammonite. I, I mentioned Uithne from the um, Ekraith, who sees herself as like the prophetess of death, right? Um, and they drove themselves in, into extinction. There was also some climate stuff and so on. So they're always in the background of the book, which I'm sorry to go back to Ursula Gwyn, but like the, the comparisons are, are very, very uh, powerful, which I really liked about this book because it kind of echoes the Eye of the Heron, Um one of Le Guin's earliest books and most mm-hmm. underread books. I can see why it's very raw. It like doesn't have her um, the same um, yeah, sure sophistication, same sophistication. But but get this: a group of colonists from diverse um, ethnical groups settle a supposedly empty planet. There's a split between them between like people who want to maintain the old aristocracy, but younger people who want to be anarchists. They form like a town outside the major settlement and try to live an alternative life where uh, the major like aristocratic forces push them out into the wilderness by military force. And that is the first time that the anarchists actually reckon with the fact that the planet is not empty. And like literally the last page is them out in a completely silent planet and understanding that they're being watched by nature. And the main theme of that book is like nature's silence and its inhumanity and how it's impenetrable. Which Griffith took and took one step further, right? And it said, again, to to hit on that that point home, but, but from a different perspective, just because a society is indigenous doesn't mean it's automatically more benign towards nature. Right, it doesn't make it automatically like people think about. Yeah, like you said, indigenous people in in America have forgotten and very effective techniques to tend nature, but they also are in charge of some of the biggest uh, population movements in animals on that continent, well before the white people showed up. 
right? Like they um, hunted and sometimes um, kept animals, right? And and uh, mm-hmm. um, what's the word I'm looking for? Breeded is not a word. Bred them, sorry. Uh, <laughs> bred them and uh, triggered like population movements of buffalo and so on. Like they weren't all, you know, lovey-dovey, yada, yada, you know, let's kumbaya and so on. And again, with this like relationship by with the planet, Griffith shows that the indigenous people also don't know everything there is to know. They don't know about the history of the aliens. They don't care that it's them, by the way, their ship, not the second wave that wiped out life. So like it shows how the colonized can also be colonizers and how yeah. being indigenous is not a guarantee of being perfect. Yeah, I think the observation in kind of this uh, connection, because I think it's still in in studying like um, human nature relationships, like it's still acknowledged that we're currently living with one of the worst ones possible, worst uh, kind of schema of, of human to nature uh, possible. And I think the observation is something like, you know, the culture that eventually kind of colonized most of the world. I mean, there there have always been, you know, a lot of groups of people who have stayed where they were and found whatever balance was needed to survive wherever they were. And then there have been expansionists. So you had like empires, right? And we're living within one empire. I don't know if it's if it should be considered as like especially long lived or just like this is what we have now. But we're living within whatever European white occupation, right, of uh, colonization of like most of the world, and in, in maybe like the post like post colonial era of that, right. So, so that group kind of um, and and as people who like grew up within that. Uh, not exactly imperial core, me and you, but kind of adjacent to it. It's like we take a lot of values for granted that come from there. And then a lot of indigenous groups, you know, what makes them indigenous? The fact that, you know, what identifies them as such is that they lived in some area and were less expansionist. Now, there were expansionists in, uh, in uh, America before it was colonized. Definitely there were empires there. Um, but there were also a lot of groups that were like less disturbed. And I think the thing is, these groups that have been suppressed because they're not expansionists, like expansion has happened on them, on their backs, have a different relationship with nature where like the expansionist, extractionist, like ideology is, you know, take everything to so you can keep taking more. Like that's capitalism 101, right? Like, uh, yeah. you know, just, uh, you know, Locke says that, like, what is property? Property, uh, that's John Locke. Uh, property is what you appropriate from nature, and you spend your body power on it, and that makes it yours. And the, uh, even Locke says, like, as long as you leave enough for other people, like, that's that's in the basics there, but who cares about that nowadays, right? But <laughs> the, the idea is like, you have to appro- like, you're very motivated to appropriate as much as possible. And then Adorno and Hochheimer write this book called um, uh, Eclipse of Reason. Well, one of the, thing that the things that they're talking about is that the kind of natural conclusion of this is 
you have to appropriate first of all yourself because like that's that's the only thing that gives you advantage over other people like access to your own body so you have to first appropriate the nature within yourself like you as a living body and that gives you the power to appropriate other things which you use to appropriate more and there's this kind of like race who can appropriate who and that kind of leads people into the logic of domination and the idea is that non-expansionist groups do not necessarily have this now i think that the interesting thing is if you take out the um, like a like a, a powerful colonizing force um yeah you will have expansionists and there were expansionists on america before the invasion um i guess i don't know like there, there's reasons that those empires didn't make it out but um yeah so i think that's just agreeing with your point but also kind of explaining the the kind of why people do make that connection and like where where that connection yeah, for does sure. come from in a, a non-essentializing way and and that brings us back to Graeber and Wengro, right? And and their their book, uh, The Dawn of Everything, right? Like this idea that um, indigenous people will not neither a blank slate, but also not um, this romantic vision of them that we have in our heads, right? Like there existed multiple political forms amongst indigenous people. Some of them were superior to ours in some ways and inferior in others. And some of them were um, completely different, right? And, and like imagining that they were completely superior is the same racism as imagining to be completely inferior, right? It's not meeting them on their own terms. Yeah, no, that's like that book, The Dawn of Everything, like it's as its name implies, is very maximalist. There's a lot of stuff there. And I feel a certain kinship to David Graeber uh, in that he's the kind of academic well, he didn't really survive in academia, but he, he does have academic training, who wants to use the academic tools to say something. Like, he's not interested in, like, being extremely, like, kind of scientifically careful. Not to say that, like, he's not rigorous. He is rigorous, but he wants to make big claims because, like, what's, you know, life is short. His life, sadly, also kind of short. Um, and... Life is too short to make like coward claims. So, so his books are always kind of making these provocative analysis that is based on anthropology, but like just know that a lot of people will disagree. But the Dharma everything does have a lot. Um, and yes, it does have um, what you say and, and this interesting idea that we think of, um, of indigenous societies as, as set in their ways where in fact it's the exact opposite where you know the reason that or one way that that colonizers were very interested in indigenous cultures is that they had very versatile and flexible uh, political structures they could change political structures in the middle of the year like uh you'd have different rules for different seasons according to what is appropriate there's a lot in that book um but one thing that i wanted to take from that book is it's kind of like the the thought about going native um, so going native is this kind of a way of thinking about the, the meeting with, uh, the natives where you lose something from your cultured ways and you become like the savages or something. And, uh, Graeber and, and Wengro make an interesting observation and they say like, we have a lot of accounts of people who went to live with indigenous people. And we have a lot of account like over, over like centuries. 
And we have a lot of accounts of indigenous people who tried to enter, um, you know, Western society. And it turns out that way more people, you know, are disappointed by trying to join Western society than are disappointed by joining um, indigenous societies. And they kind of say, you know, when you join when you join Western society, you have nothing. You have to work all the time, and if you don't do very well, you're gonna be let to starve. And even if you do very well, a lot of people, like in their accounts, in their journals of like the attempt to join, they're very dismayed by this fact that like the people who fail are just left, you know, hungry in the streets. Like that's just unacceptable. Like people, it just breaks. You know, even the people who do have food, you know, who have like the people who have come from indigenous society to join Western society, they're like, these people are crazy. They're letting people starve in the street when they have food. Um, and there's no time for, because of this expansionist um, kind of uh, ideology, there's no time for just sitting about. So yeah, the, the living conditions for indigenous people weren't as good as they were in the, in the Western places. That's, that was what was tempting for them. But they had to work, you know, every second that they could. And within the indigenous communities, you did as much work that was usually harder um, that you needed to survive. But once you finished like this, like whatever was needed for the day, you weren't expected to like do more. Like you do what needs to be done and then you can stop working. You just do stuff. Yeah. Um, so... This book has a really interesting, and, and now I'm back to um, Ammonites, like has a really interesting way of thinking about going native. So going native appears like right at the beginning, uh, the anthropo- uh, Marge, the anthropologist kind of goes down to the planet and then she sees that even the mirrors have started uh, crafting um, like, Weapons, like using balls. their equipment to craft no, they they craft uh, utensils. They craft oh, like right. yeah, yeah. living they, things. Uh, they decorate their uh, living spaces. Yes, they, they, they decorate their living spaces with things yeah. that they've crafted. Uh, because of the virus, they're all in quarantine, uh, and it's not clear that we haven't spoken much about the virus. But Marge is also a test for the virus, for a, a vaccine to the virus. So she's giving yeah. this weird vaccine that gets a lot of treatment actually in the book, and. Uh, uh, we're supposed to see whether or not she gets the virus. So the vaccine, besides like doing some some politics of its own, we can talk about it in a second. The vaccine is a kind of kind of symbolizes her attempt to avoid becoming native. The virus is the thing that makes you native, uh, kind of uh, sim- symbolically. And uh, so because of the the quarantine, like the people can't leave, and they just start becoming native. Now, this is kind of a colonialist approach, which is something worth remembering. And I don't know if the book is like explicitly critical of this, like within the structure of this world, supposedly there's enough space for everybody, Um, which on the one hand, you could say like, that's fair. Like if that was the case, then, then settling wouldn't be so bad. On the other hand, this was how the settling of the Americas was conceptualized, right? Like the, the locals aren't using all of their land. We're going to come and use it. Um, and we, we do know how that turned out. So, uh, yeah, so but, but to be fair, like there is the, like in all the, the reason the planet is empty is because the original arrival of humans 
genocided the local aliens. Yes, 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 yes. So, so like, that's... It, that is a parallel to like, you know, the horses off the ships and the cannon and, and killing all of the indigenous people in America and then saying, it's empty. Yeah, and as you say, like the mirrors are seen as this colonial force. So yeah, it makes sense. But as they kind of remain, um, they are, are kind of forced to become native. They're abandoned because of the virus. They're abandoned by the people who sent them. And there's an interesting line in the end uh, that says, you know, after abandoning them, like someday they'll be back and they'll bring the death with them. And then you're like, you think that the, that they're going to like, as a reader, you're like, oh, she means that they're going to genocide the planet. And she's like, they're going to bring a vaccine. And the virus is also what allows people to get pregnant. So there's this really interesting thing here about, there's so much like that you could say about this. So I don't want, I don't want to close anything. Like I just, I just like think that the book gives you a chance to think about all these things and what it means to, to go native, to adapt to your um, society. Uh, What it means that like a vaccine, like something that um, immunizes you symbolizes um, in the beginning, it symbolizes your detachment. And in the end, it symbolizes your death. Like you have gone native and now, um, to be vaccinated, to be like returned into like the fold, like, like the fold of empire would be death. Um, it's really interesting, and, and there's also like this mythology there because you can already see how they're all going to mythologize the concept of like, oh, the next people to come here, like we should, we need to know that they bring death. Um, so yeah, so I don't, I, I, like, I don't want to say like what this means that like, does this, does it mean like colonialism bad? Sure. Yeah. It means that, but it, it, it just affords us like a lot of ways of thinking about what it means to even be a colonizer or what it even means to, um, like see yourself as, as a part and, and the fact that there is a, a, a temptation to join different societies and, and this is a kind of point that is important always when talking about like indigenous stuff. Um, every culture has like a logic of what it's like to live in that culture. Um, you know, I don't want to go like cultural relativists or, or anything. I'm not, I, I think we can judge other cultures, but I think it's interesting to, to note that like when we meet like other societies, like we should assume that they have reasons for living the way they do. And we should yeah. kind of wonder why it is that things are organized the way they are, for better or for worse. But but I think to hit home on that cultural relativism note that you made, what what Griffith is trying to say again, going back to that humanizing point, is that yeah, you can criticize other societies, and you should. Like the Ekreith are wrong; they are going to eventually die out. And the book ends with them opening up to um, another tribe that they have been in um, conflict with for ages by the actions of the outsiders. Like the outsiders force them into this collaboration with the other tribe and to come into the network of Trata. But what Griffith is saying is... Well, the interesting thing is that they actually like come into contact with this tribe so that they can go on a like religious uh, murder spree. Yeah, um, but, but, and, then, but and then they're yeah. forced to... Yeah, they are forced yeah. to join uh, in a more peaceful way, which I mean, it's all yeah. interesting. By, by Marge's actions right like she's the one who halts yeah. them 
and, and, and forces them to like open up their, their borders and to keep this collaboration beyond this raid, but in like into the future and um, prosperity of both the tribes. Um, and, and I think that's really interesting because what Griffith is saying is in order to criticize other cultures, exactly what you said, you need to understand them and often understanding them is not saying everything is great, everything is fine, everything is perfect, right? That's like, again, the white liberal who feels uncomfortable criticizing things like the misogyny in hip-hop, right? Like, sugarcoating a very real problem just because it exists in a different culture is not the opposite of only criticizing that and hyper-focusing on it because you're racist, I like. remember seeing this um, this uh, exhibit, like museum exhibit about FGM and uh, female genital mutilation, mm-hmm. and the person who did the the thing said that she had this experience of I think this is the person she said she had this experience of like coming from a place where that's a practice and she was somehow spared of it and. She comes to study in the U.S. and like she goes into a classroom where someone's like talking about how it's impossible to morally evaluate this like this really terrible thing that's done, and she was shocked. Like she was shocked that she's like, you know, in the like halls of education, and they can't be just like you know, wanton cruelty bad. Like it's like yeah. there's something condescending, but in, in that approach too, like it's a it's a cop out. Yeah, it's a cop out. Um, so I think the only thing we didn't talk about is the virus. And to be honest, I find that really interesting <laughs> because I think like if I had read this maybe five years ago, we would have talked about it more. But now post COVID, it kind of has. First of all, we've talked about about the viruses and the politics of virus and vaccination and so on so much during the last years that um, I don't know. A lot of what the book from 1992 says about these things, I think, is a bit naive in many ways. Um, but there is one thing I want to focus on, which, again, speaks to the subtlety of this novel and, like, the needle that it tries to thread. Because anti-vaccination has been around for a long time, um, yeah. well before COVID. And I think this book has an interesting thing to say about that as well. It's exactly what we said about the indigenous question, right? Well, yes, anti-vaxxers are wrong. Like, the vaccine in this book, it works. It does like prevent this virus, and it does save you from dying. But... It is not some kind of like ploy. There, there is, there are ploys and intrigue and spies and evil shit going on, but it's not a vaccine. Yeah, it's not a vaccine. It's actually a red herring, right? Like you keep expecting the vaccine to be something, and it just nope. It it works. It just works. Um, but the question is that the main character poses many many times is how can I feel safe taking a vaccine that was created by people I fundamentally mistrust? Yeah, right? like, exactly. Exactly. A feeling that's drilled really well because I had this exact thought. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like when I was getting the vaccine, I had no doubt in my mind that I was going to get vaccinated. Why? Because even though I'm a postmodernist, and again, people who use that term have no idea what it means, it doesn't mean <laughs> that I think that the scientific process does not exist. Science is still able to deliver quantifiable, measurable results. Um, And I think the vaccine was the result of the scientific process. However, I had real concerns because the other scenarios, which were way more likely and completely buried by the slew of 
anti-vaxxer nonsense is that the trials would go well, but not perfect, and those findings would be silenced, right? Or um, look at the very real problems that women reported with their menstrual cycles and hormonal cycles following taking the vaccine that were not researched, were underfunded, and were uh, cast into the same, like, uh, uh, you know, bin labeled crazy shit. Right? Yeah, and, and, I, think, and, I think someone interesting on this is Corey Doctorow. I've heard him say, like, really interesting things about conspiracy yeah. theories where he says that a lot of the times, like it feels like the conspiracies and I, I don't know if like this step even happens, but the conspiracy theories are always like kind of frothing in the mouth um, around something that does have some nuance and some interesting ways of engaging with it. He talks, for example, about 5G and how like the rollout of 5G has a lot of problems not in that it's a way to like control your mind or that it kills people, but in that it's coming instead of, you know, just putting fibers in the ground, which uh, there are a lot of reasons to do, but it's not as monetizable and that it interferes with some, um, with some airports uh, or frequencies and that causes problems. And it's like, you know, it's these like mundane nuanced problems that like are definitely worth discussing and and being kind of forefront of our discussions about these things and like conspiracy theories bury them and it's really interesting that the way that like the vaccine like hesitancy here is tied to um biofeedback like the the main character has a thing with biofeedback which i think is also kind of 90s like to think that biofeedback is magic but that's fine (laughs) and like the character really like kind of likes doing biofeedback and and kind of uh controlling her i mean at some point she's like a a kick-ass like dnd monk right like she can break shit with her arms and go without water and breath and like yeah yeah there's biofeedback goes into some fantastical the biofeedback stuff is really funny it's so incongruous with the rest of the writing it's like here's something from the matrix like in the middle of this sci-fi book yeah but um but what i think is interesting about this is like what is biofeedback if not like listening for like very small currents and not letting the kind of noise um, distract you? Like, and I think that is what we need to do with our analysis of things like vaccines. With our analysis of a lot of things where there's a conspiracy, not because, by the way, I think that conspiracy theories like have a little bit of a point. No, I think that a lot of them don't have any points. Uh, I think that they are um, viciously motivated. But I think that what they often do is they latch on to places where they think that reasonably people will have worries um, and they drown it out with their, like, bullshit that is, again, like, it's meant to make money, it's meant to, like, get clout, and it's cynical. Um, But the kind of, like, tragic thing there is that it's, latches onto something where a good discourse could have evolved, you know, where like there could be, like there is something to criticize, like, and I think you said a lot, like as vaccines were rolling out, that, I mean, yeah, we needed vaccines and and vaccine rollouts were were really good, but they were kind of like, instead of a lot of other things that could have been done, like, and they should have been done alongside other things to make people safer and to help people who 
uh, are still at risk of COVID because they're uh, immune deficient. And we haven't really thought about like, you know, could we use COVID as a chance to make our society uh, such that it's more um, livable for people with uh, immune conditions? And that discourse, you know, people who can't benefit from a vaccine, not enough. Uh, and that discourse just just blew up, like blew up because of, you know, um, the, everyone who wasn't like in line with the right um, talking points just seemed like a conspiracy theorist. And again, it's because there were a lot of conspiracy theorists. So, so I, I don't really blame people for like kind of losing the plot. Uh, yeah. But that's that's like what we need as like good analyzers of what's going on. We need to be like that biofeedback stuff. Like we need to be like hyper aware, hyper specific, like very specific with what we say, what we listen to, what the claims are, and be very careful of anything that's trying to like drown out with noise or with like very general claims and kind of uh, distract it. For sure. I, I super agree with that. And I think that's what Ammonite does by avoiding saying vaccine good. Right, it's not just saying no, you're wrong. The vaccine is good. It's saying both things can exist at the same time. Right, the vaccine can be good and effective, and we need it, and it needs to be widely distributed. But also, I have some questions. Right, I have yeah. some questions about the people who made this, why they made it, how they made it, and I am not only entitled to these answers as a person, and the fact that you're messing around with my internal biology and chemistry, I am also willing to take those answers, right? Like I, I will not, the, the, I think this is a crucial point, right? Like you can't use the crisis to get me to fall in line. It's more important that I get these answers than that um, you are able to have this successful rollout of the vaccine. In fact, one should be the prerequisite for the other. Like first you should tell me what's going on and then we should talk about mass vaccination and not, you know, um, as they like to say in Israel, shut up the guns are firing. Um, so yeah. not just like, don't ask questions because right now there's a pandemic. It's like, obviously, like whenever you want to administer these things, you will use a crisis to get me to not answer questions. Therefore, I cannot wait for normal times to ask these questions because they are not relevant, right? And also, and why, keep... why can't the crisis be a time of more conversation? Like that just seems like yeah. a good time to talk anyway. Like why 100%. shouldn't we talk about mass, like mass shootings after a mass shooting? Seems like a good time for that conversation. Like same. Yeah. And I think, I think you've convinced me that this like is not a naive take on vaccines, but actually like a very kind of prescient one, because I think that it exactly says, let's be hesitant about vaccines while recognizing that the science is actually like good and likely to maybe work. Um, but it is being delivered to us by these institutions and then the institutions are the problem and maybe these institutions sometimes want to kill us and that all doesn't negate the fact that the science can still be good and that like you can take the vaccine like this vaccine also makes marge sick but like that's kind of like part of what's going to make the vaccine work like it really like explains to you yeah that sometimes when you take a vaccine it sucks like it does bad things to your body but it still vaccinates you and like, yeah you communicate that and says like and then let's turn our critical eye to like what institutions exist in the context of what's going on. And sometimes I think the conclusion will be because that has happened in the past, like they are doing experiments with humans and sometimes it will be the science is fine. The vaccine is fine, but that doesn't mean that everything is okay in the political context. Yeah. 
So, to summarize, Ammonite. It's a, it's a weird one, a weird novel. Not, not in the way that it's written, but like its themes are very subtle and it kind of didn't get the recognition that I think it deserves. It didn't like blow my mind, but I think it's a worthwhile addition to, especially the moment in which it was written. Um, so check it out. I, we, we strongly recommend it, even though it seems like we might be a bit conflicted. I still think it's a worthwhile book. And Spear, um, Griffith's most recent novel, is phenomenal. Um, admittedly, you'll find less nuanced discussions of politics and philosophy in there, but it is very well written. Um, and also it's queer. So, you know, it has that going for it, which is, which is always good. Uh, what yeah, else have repeat, you been... To repeat my, my recommendation from the beginning, I think this is a great book. Well, it's a yeah. great book if you are already reading a lot of science fiction. But if someone asks you, like, what should be my first science fiction book, this might be, like, a really good answer, actually. Yes, I, I agree 100%. So what else have you been partaking in, Yanai? Yeah, so as you know, when I am reading a long book, uh, all my friends hear about it to no end, uh, which <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry about. I don't, I don't know if I've uh, told you about this, but I know some of our listeners are you know, people we know, and I'm sorry to them that, that they've uh, heard me talk about this book. But I uh, listened to the autobiography of Ida B. Wells. Mm. And it kicks like many, many asses. Um, and it was, was, was pretty cool, like very unapologetic, warlike figure uh, compared to like the prophetess Deborah and like Joan of Arc. Like she, she really like got into a lot of fights basically. And, but like was a very effective advocates and interestingly knew how to wield both anger and civility to uh, achieve her goals which were mainly fighting against lynching of uh of black people and it's a really interesting book because it almost reads like fiction in how detailed it is because i guess she kept notes or something because she remembers everything and if you're interested in like organizing and like how like there's so much there about organizing like wherever she goes like in the world like in her wake organizations are formed like these little committees for you know collecting money and making declarations of like condemning uh lynching and yeah really interesting figure got into a lot of fights with people very like um, I guess, like very ideologically pure, like she knew what, like, not she is ideologically pure in relation to some ideology I have, but she, she had a very purist idea. People should be right. Like she wasn't compromising at all. And that got her in fights with like some of the most, not fights that like ended their relationship, but like some of the most kind of noted, um, Characters like um, uh, Du Bois fucked her over some like at some point like got her name yeah. off like a really important list um, and who's, and also who's uh, uh, Francis Willard Francis Willard I yeah. do not recall too much about her she she was she was a very important figure she was um, the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Yes, and, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. 
that that was like mm-hmm. the first big Wells like public scandal fight sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, she she really got into it with a lot of people. But yeah, she was also like really influential with the suffragettes uh, and kind of um, uh, influencing black women to join the fight for suffrage. Um, at a point where like now this seems weird, but like. Um, people did not believe that they would gain much political power like by, yeah. by getting suffrage. Uh, so yeah, really interesting figure and a book that really like details all the, the, the little details of like what made her fight so successful. So for anyone who's like interested in like organizing or something, I think it's a very interesting uh, book to get into and it's very well written. It ends, uh, last thing I'll say about it, it ends in the middle of a ward because she... <laughs> She died before like finishing a uh-huh. word. Um, and her daughter chose to like leave it like that. Her daughter was the editor and she was like, yeah, her work isn't done. So I'm, I'm leaving yeah. this book off in the middle of a word. Uh, really interesting. interesting. Uh, what about you? Cool. Anything you want to plug? Yeah, so I'm reading a book that I'm going to cover for Death Sentence, which is the only reason we're not going to cover it here. Um, mm. That is The Marigold by Andrew F. Sullivan. Um, this is extremely good. So one of the most famous books of uh, science fiction, which was also turned into a pretty good movie, um, is J.G. Ballard's High Rise. Um, mm-hmm. That all takes part in this collapsing corporate back tower. And The Marigold is obviously very influenced by that. It's about Toronto, um, like five minutes into the future where climate change has caused Toronto's lake to start flooding all the basements of the city and all the subways, um, creating the wet, which is like a mold bacteria kind of infestation that begins to transform people. All the while, um, corporations, uh, there it's called Threshold. You know about how Google wants to build a smart neighborhood in Toronto? Um, They want to do that. By the way, they bought like a lakeside... Um, like a peer uh, neighborhood and they they're trying to get for years now they've been trying to get like permits to make it the first fully like you know panopticon smart city cameras everywhere data collection experiment yeah, so guys, here, you, you know when we said that there are things to worry about with 5g there yeah it's it's uh, like that uh, meme about the torment nexus right um yeah. well the science fiction author writes the book don't build a torment nexus and then someone says today we have built the torment nexus um so here, Threshold is the name of the corporation, which is a brilliant name for an evil corporation. Um, mm-hmm. They build this neighborhood and they're ignoring the wet and the city is, of course, um, in, in cahoots with them. And it follows like from one end to investigators who fight the wet. They're like exterminator investigators. That's one storyline. The other is a guy who works for Magellan, which is like the settings Uber. Uh, so he's mm-hmm. like a gig economy uh, guy and he gets a hold of a USB stick with like all the marigold plants showing that. Oh, I won't spoil it, but there's a thing there. Uh, the owner of the marigold, and it's like hinted that there's like <laughs> like a Cthulhu esque cult that built the structure for him or with him. Um, and yeah, like a bunch of other like short stories thrown in between chapters and like living in near future Toronto where everything is like today but even more awful. It's very good. Like it's written extremely well, world to world. But also the ideas are phenomenal, um, and it really pulls it off. I'm I'm going to be covering it for Death Sentence, 
by the way, if you don't know, I have another literary podcast called Death Sentence where we focus on, it's also anarchist, but we focused on like weirder literature than we do here. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to link in this chapter the episode you did. In this episode, I'm going to link the episode you did on The Dawn of Everything. Yeah, yeah, we cover The Dawn of Everything. On the, Even though you get uh, into a lot of weird online leftist politics, which I think is yeah, very yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Death Sentence is, is a lot weirder than this podcast. We also, like, we go really off script and we talk about anything that comes to mind. And there's, like, Langdon, my co-host, they're uh, a character. I, I love them to death. But also, like, they can be a bit uh, overwhelming, but it is what it is. Anyway, Marigold, Andrew F. Sullivan. I want to read other stuff that he wrote. Um, he has a bunch of previous books. I've followed him on Twitter like for a while now, and this is the first book of his that I've checked out. Um, and it looks like that was a mistake because it's very good. So check that out if you. It's it's horror-ish, um, dystopian science fiction. If that speaks to you, or if you liked High Rise, then you should check this out. And that our is next it. episode will be on the leftist politics of Final Fantasy VII Remake. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, so actually, no, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to pitch you something. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to pitch you in real time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm ambushing you on purpose. Um, I wanted to do... I've been looking for a place to talk about 40K for a long time now. And I haven't found... A place to do that and what do i mean by 40k uh, warhammer 40 yeah. it's like been so memed the politics of 40k and how people who play it miss the point and like there's fascists in there even though the entire point of the setting is like fascism bad and so on uh, mm-hmm. and, but i've found so little places actually seriously grappling with the politics of the setting its limitations and so on the problem is that they're like 60, 70 books, right? Uh, um, so I, I'm not sure like which specific part we want to focus on or or why. There have been like a few better books released in recent years. Like they've upped their game as far as um, writers. But a lot of them like focus on the Tomb Kings. The um, Not the Tomb Kings. The Tomb Kings is the fantasy race. What are they called? The Neko whatever. Um, fuck this setting is so stupid but I, I'd love for us to like I'd love for us to like find a way to talk about 40k on this podcast and like maybe we do the lore maybe we do like a brief introduction of like the main factions and then we dive into it because there's a lot of like lore videos out there so we don't have to do like a lore podcast but then talk about talk about like the aesthetic presentation of the empire, the the evil quote unquote factions and what they represent. The Tao are like supposedly a communist alternative to the empire, um, but I but it but there's like <laughs> uh, fucking what's their name? The company Games Workshop is British, so of course the communists have to be like mindless drones. Um, yeah. That's like the give and take. I don't know. What do you think? It's kind of like an ambitious idea, but I, I'm really looking for a place to do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll develop the technology to talk about Warhammer 40k. <laughs> we can rebuild you. Um, yeah. Faster, stronger, better. Okay, cool. So next time, whenever that is, we have uh, ceased uh, uh, promising any kind of like... Uh, um... Yeah, we've embraced chaos. We've embraced Just chaos. Like chaos. Okay. We'll record when we're ready. Uh, damn it, I'll add the damn it there. It makes it more convincing. Um, and we will see you whenever that is with uh, 40K. Thank you for listening. 
don't forget to check out anarchysf.com for more science fiction and anarchy and, and good stuff like that and we will see you next time see you then